Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this service today that Pentecost is the festival we're, we're celebrating today. You heard in the book of Acts, chapter 2, which was just read, about what Pentecost involved. Uh, the disciples are in the upper room, they're praying, and God sends forth the Holy Spirit. And it takes the form of a mighty wind that blows, and then tongues of fire, so they come down from heaven, and then something miraculous happens. The disciples go out into the crowds and start speaking, and all the crowds who are from different countries hear the words that the disciples are speaking in their own language, uh, their own home language, which is a miraculous way in which uh, the disciples speak the languages that they don't know. And so Pentecost is the day that we celebrate in red because it's the fire of the Holy Spirit coming. But Pentecost, as I mentioned earlier, is also something really significant because it, it's a turning point. Last week I mentioned, as I spoke about the ascension where Jesus leaves the earth, he does something really interesting. Up until this point, we've been focusing on Jesus' mighty deeds of power, the great things he's done, including and uh, culminating in his death and resurrection. After Pentecost, as I mentioned, we'll be focusing on what the church does, what people do uh, as a result of Jesus teaching them and them following the commandments. The Pentecost is really vital because that moment when Jesus hands over the responsibilities to serve the world to the disciples at the Ascension seems like it could be very, very full of fear and despair because of the mighty task they're given and their inability to do it. Pentecost is important because it tells us that they are not left without God's help, but instead the Holy Spirit comes, strengthens them to be able to do what Jesus calls them to do. I'd like to speak to you today about Pentecost and how it is that it encourages us in our daily life, although it happened 2,000 years ago, but how it is that as we go into ordinary time, we go about the ordinary business of doing our daily stuff. Today gives us hope, gives us a reminder that we don't need to be afraid we're alone. We can actually do what Jesus calls us to do because Jesus has given us the power to do it. The first thing that I wanted to mention, though, is before we get into the nitty-gritty about how the power comes to us, is to look at this passage and help us realize that before it gives us power, it also gives us inspiration. And it gives us inspiration because this passage, through what Peter says in this passage of Acts, tells us that in following Jesus, we're doing more than getting power from God. We're being wrapped up in something far bigger than ourselves. It is the gift of meaning and of purpose that comes from knowing we are part of God's great action throughout history and throughout the world. And that is something that we long for and need in a world that so often seems empty of meaning. Now, what do I mean by that in saying we're being wrapped up into something bigger? Now, I mentioned just a moment ago about how this miraculous thing happens, right? The Holy Spirit comes, and tongues of fire come, and there's a great wind, and people gather because these are amazing things they're seeing. And not only do they gather, they start hearing their own languages, and naturally, they're amazed by this. They start asking what's going on, and some sneer and say these guys are drunk, there's something wrong going on. And then when Peter, the head of the disciples, is challenged to give an answer, like what's going on, what's happening, he doesn't say what I might expect him to say. I might expect him to say, Jesus is giving us power, now come and follow Jesus and you can have the same yourself. Instead of Peter saying directly what it gives to him and the disciples, Peter responds by saying, this is in fact the fulfillment of a promise that God made a long time ago. Listen to Peter's words in Acts chapter 2 as he speaks about what's going on today in Pentecost. Peter, standing with the eleven, that's verse 14, he raised his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, 
Let this be known to you, and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then later on he says, I will show portents in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Peter is challenged by doubters and he's challenged to explain what's going on, his go-to response is God is fulfilling promises he made hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And that's what you're seeing. This is so significant because what Peter is doing is he's saying, look, before I tell you about the benefit it comes to you personally, I want to tell you about the character of the God who is doing this. This is a God who answers promises that he makes unfailingly. And he answers these promises and fulfills what he promises, even if at times it doesn't seem like the timing is right for you personally. Now, why does Peter say he's fulfilling the promise? If you listen to the words that Joel is saying, Peter is probably identifying some of the things he sees in Jesus' life, saying this is what uh, has been promised. Notice some of the interesting things that he talks about. He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit on these different disciples, both young and old, different disciples, and they're speaking in ways that others understand. Here's a fulfillment of prophecy. But more than that, portents in the heaven above. What happens in Jesus' life? We're told in Luke's gospel that in the heavens, angels appear to the shepherds to say Jesus has been born. We find in Matthew's gospel that a light shows up in the heavens to lead wise men from far away to come to Jesus. And more than that, what does he go on to say? The sun shall be turned to darkness. Do you remember just a few weeks ago when we listened to the terrible events of Good Friday, what happens? That the sun is covered. The sky turns dark in the middle of the afternoon as Jesus gives up his last breath. Portents in the earth below, the earth shakes, and we find a miraculous sign of the earth shaking and a giant earthquake shakes the entire earth. What do we find? Jesus' blood shed. And here, where he talks about signs of fire and smoky mist, what is coming down? We're finding coming down is the fire of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying is that Joel made a promise to Israel long ago. Through Joel, God said, Israel, you are oppressed. There are terrible things occurring to you, and we don't know exactly when Joel occurred, but clearly that entire book talks about foreign armies coming like locusts to eat up the fields of Jerusalem. He comes and talks about how it is Jerusalem will be hurt and broken and judged. But he says that there will come a day when God's Spirit will be poured out in all flesh, not just on this small circle of Judea, not just in the small group of the people of Jerusalem, but upon all flesh. We see that Peter looks here and says, that promise you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, God did not forget. Even though at times you may very well have felt like it's never going to come, God did not forget what he promised. And here it is being poured out now. Even more directly, just a few um, days earlier, what did Jesus say to the disciples? He says here, this is what you've heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What did John the Baptist say? John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Earlier in Luke's gospel, he starts off with that. And what do we find happening in the book of Acts? Jesus' promise is coming true. 
Peter is saying is that the promises Jesus makes are ones that you can rely on, even if they take a long time and go through some very difficult journeys in the middle of it. Now, why is this so significant? It's significant for the Jewish people, of course, saying this same God who promised you these things is fulfilling it. Jesus is not some interloper who came in and is trying to lead you astray. He is the instrument that God is using to bring about his promises. But for us who do not come from a Jewish background, I think the biggest thing that it's talking to us about is it's talking to us about the faithfulness of God and about the challenge for us to put aside our immediate needs and recognize that God is doing something great, even if at the moment in our own lives we may not see it. One of the big challenges we have as Christians who live in the modern Western world is that we are so full of material abundance and we have so many rights and privileges that it can be difficult for us to believe that there are sometimes times we don't get what we want. Think about nowadays and how simple it is to get anything you want. You know, I remember, and I'm dating myself here, but if I heard about a book I wanted to get, I would go down to my local mall and there would be a little bookstore there and I'd look through and there wouldn't be anything that I wanted there. So I'd have to go and I would have to talk to the manager and they'd write down with this thing we call the pen. And they'd write this thing down and say, okay, what was the name of the book? And uh, do you know who the publisher is? No, I don't, I'm afraid. And so they'd have this big book full of stuff where they would look it up and, and say, look, I'll have to phone you back. A few days later, they'd phone you back and they'd say, okay, this is the book, this is the publisher, this is what it'll cost. Do you want to get it? Okay, we'll order it. And then you go and you order it and three weeks later, miraculously, you go to the bookstore and you get the book. What happens now? You hear about something in a podcast, oh yeah, and while you're listening, you scroll onto your Amazon app, you click it, and you got Amazon Prime, and tomorrow it's there. You get used to this in so many aspects of life. Now, if your tummy's rumbling and you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to need to eat right after church, and you don't want to miss any time, you pull up your McDonald's app, and you put it in and program it so that at, depending on how long Father Stephen talks, 12.15, you can rush over to McDonald's and get yourself that, right? And if they forget pickles on your order, then you can go right back and say, I didn't get my pickles. Oh, I'm sorry, you'll get a brand new order, right? Customer's always right. Well, those are all kind of silly examples, but the reality of it is, is that this spills out into everyday life. How much we can become spoiled little brats because we look at something that goes on in our life and stamp our feet and say, this is not what I had asked for. And of course, when serious things happen in our life, when real suffering occurs, and we keep saying, well, God, you promised to be with me. You love me. You've, you've told me you're the good shepherd. You know your sheep by name. And, and you tell me the wonderful story of that lost sheep that you go out and find. And I'm a lost sheep and I'm not being found. What's going on? And we forget, of course, that God has done these things for us. But the story of God's salvation is for us. But it's not about us. It is instead the story of a God whose promises are true, who fulfills his desire to renew the earth and make all things new. And we are gratefully part of that great progress that God is doing. But it does not occur on our timetable and it does not occur necessarily in the way we want it to. Even Jesus himself, God's own son, we look to the letter to the Hebrews, that we are told that Jesus' obedience would made perfect through suffering. Jesus himself prays and says, not, uh, you know, let this cup pass from me as he's in the garden, but not my will but yours be done. He didn't want to go through the cross, but that was the instrument God used to bring about the salvation of the world and ultimately the day of Pentecost that we celebrate today. We have crosses to bear. We often don't want to go through those crosses that we have to bear because it hurts us, but at the same time, passages like this in which we are reminded God is a God who keeps his promises, but also a God who has a vision that is bigger than our vision. 
means that he accomplishes things through our challenges and difficulties. And we need a certain amount of faith in the God who keeps his promises to say, I don't know what's going on, and this doesn't meet my expectations, and this isn't what I want. But I remember about how you keep promises, and I know that in some way you are bringing about something good by making me go through the difficult circumstances I face today. I think the importance of this as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is to say it reminds us that we're part of something bigger and frankly that is a huge gift. It's one of the greatest challenges in our world today is not just the narcissism about getting what I want, it is also a challenge of purposelessness. And about how many people unfortunately live through life feeling like my life has no bigger meaning than my own pleasure and they feel themselves so empty. That is not what God gives us. We are part of something big. He is renewing the world, and by His grace, even though at times it means our suffering, He's including us in this great renewal and this great project. We're part of something big. And that is good news. But the other thing which I, I, I opened with is to say one of the great gifts of this day that we celebrate is that even though Jesus says, yes, you have to go through some difficult things, yes, you've got to take up your cross, and yes, follow my commandments, he doesn't simply say, I did all the tough and heavy lifting now, and frankly, I need a break. Church, you take care of it. Instead, he says, I pass you the baton, but I do not leave you orphaned. Instead, he says, I will come and I will still do the heavy lifting, but I will do the heavy lifting through you. One of the really interesting things when we look at Luke, uh, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and also today's Acts of the Apostles. That's why if you begin the Acts of the Apostles, you look at the first uh, words he says, the first book I wrote to you, Theophilus, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is a really great writer. I know when I didn't learn much Greek in seminary, but I learned a little bit. But we've never read out of Luke because Luke was too complicated. He was a good writer, a classical writer. John is what we read, and he was much simpler because as a fisherman, he'd write simple Greek. And Luke was an educated person who wrote it more complicated. But what's so exciting when you read through and you listen to commentators is you realize that Luke fills his Gospel and the book of Acts with parallels that point us to what the power of the Spirit is doing. Where the Spirit is, there's power. Jesus, for example, is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he comes back filled with the Spirit and power. But here's something that's really interesting as a parallel to the way that Luke begins his gospel and the way that Luke begins the book of Acts. And listen particularly for the same phrase that comes up in both passages. So this is a passage where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary at the beginning of Luke's gospel. We've heard this around Christmas, that she'll conceive and have a son. And Mary says very reasonably to the angel, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? This is uh, chapter 1 of Luke. But the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. A mental note on that one, but listen for the same phrasing. <clears throat> Jesus replied, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You notice the linkage there? The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and because of the Holy Spirit's work, she gives birth to the Messiah, Jesus. In Acts, the Holy Spirit comes with power upon the apostles, and the apostles give birth to the church, which is to be Jesus' body on earth. That's really not only neato, but that is also telling us is, is it's telling us about who continues to do the heavy lifting. Mary asks reasonably, how, how am I going to have a baby? I'm a virgin. In fact, even when you go through the normal process of having a baby, I know 
that many couples I've talked to really struggle because they want to have children and they can't conceive. Even with modern medical techniques, sometimes you can spend a lot of money in fertility treatments and not conceive even though you want to. Conception is a gift that God gives. It is outside of your power. And yet at the same time, I've been in the delivery room four times to see babies born. There's an awful lot of labor and an awful lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into giving birth to those children. But you understand what's going on there. That child is a gift given by the power of God even though it requires some work and effort for us to bring that forth. Same thing with the apostles. The apostles, we are told again and again in this passage, it is by the Spirit that they speak. God's Spirit gives them the power. God's Spirit opens the hearts of those who listen. And a little bit later in that chapter, we're told 3,000 people listening all come to Christ and come to follow Him by the Spirit's power. But it still requires the disciples to go out and take risks. We find in chapter 4, then John and... um, Peter are arrested, they're brought before the authorities as a result of what they've been doing. God's Spirit empowers them, but it still has a cost. But there's the important point. It is always the Spirit's empowerment allowing them what they could not do by themselves. You know, I was, uh, in preparing for this, I was reading one of my favorite commentators, Ian Paulus, his name is a professor in England in Nottingham. And he gave the analogy here about what's going on. He says, you need to understand that it's not the power of the disciples, but the power of God. And he drew that analogy between his days uh, at university when he was on a rowing team. He was on a rowing team and he says, when you want to row quickly and in rowing competitions, everything depends on the, upon the power and the speed and the technique of the rowers. When you think about it, if you ever watch rowing, it means you need to be strong to pull, you need to pull in time, and you need to do it speedily. That's what gives the power. But he says one of the things he took up after university they took up sailing. And he said, there's similarities. You're both in a boat. There's also similarities in that you need some skill, some, po- some strength, some stamina. But he said, the thing about sailing that's different than rowing is the power comes entirely from the wind. Where you move quickly in a boat when you're sailing is because you're wise enough to know how to direct the sail in such a way that it catches the maximum power of the wind. And that is exactly what I think is going on here. Where Jesus is pouring out the Spirit, where the disciples are receiving the Spirit of God, it's a matter of them creating the conditions so that they get the maximum power of the Spirit to propel them. That, I believe, is a message for us. It can be very easy for us to come to church and say, oh, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Oh, we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. Oh, we're supposed to bless those who curse us. And then we step outside and think, man, this is really, really hard. And it is. Many times we'll mess up in that journey. And so we think, why bother? I don't have the strength to do it. What we're encouraged to do is not to buck up and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Passages like this remind us that in the many months to come, in ordinary time where you're just going about your business, serving the Lord the best way you can, what you are called to do is to create the conditions for the Spirit to work. One of the simplest things to do is given to us right here. Where do the disciples receive the Spirit? We are told that they are in the upper room praying. And think about an activity that's completely useless in the eyes of the world. Oh, some deity up there, please help me. It seems like you're doing nothing. And sometimes it can be an excuse. You know, that, I, that criticism, thoughts and prayers don't mean much. And, and sometimes that criticism is valid. We need to control the violence that happens in the United States or, or the really challenging things. And we say, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to pray. This is not what it's talking about. Instead, I think what it's saying is to say, you want the power to make a change in the world? 
do not neglect to actually talk to the person who has the power to change. Spend time in prayer asking God, what do you want me to do? What am I capable of doing? And can you give me the strength to overcome my limitations so I can do them? The disciples gather and Jesus tells them, don't do anything, stay here and pray. And they do it. And then Jesus pours out his power and then they do great things. Do you create conditions in your day and in your week where you open yourself up enough to God to say, okay, I'm listening. Do you want to say something to me? Or to say, here's my problem, here's my challenge. Can you do something with it? Do you do this on a regular basis? Because doing that is like being a sailor who moves that sail enough to be able to let the spirit or the wind empower them. Do you meditate uh, on the word? Do you come to church preparing your heart and, and asking God, give me the wisdom to see what word you're giving to me? Is there something in what Father Stephen's saying or what's being read or in the music that's supposed to speak to me in some way? These are ways that we allow ourselves to be open to God's spirit while still recognizing that it's his power. His power, but his power empowering us to be his feet, to be his hands, to be his body in the world. What's our encouragement here? We are part, first of all, of something much bigger than ourselves. God's promises are being fulfilled even when we can't see it at times. But we keep throwing ourselves into God's trustworthy nature and saying, God, I do not see it at the moment, but I know you're including me in something big because you're moving the world in the right place. But secondly, at times where we despair and think, I can't do this, I'm not capable of withstanding the challenges or answering the challenges you give me, remind yourself that the answer to it is not toughen up. The answer to it is to start providing places in your life where the Spirit can start working to strengthen you, encourage you, and guide you in the right way. God does not leave us as orphans and doesn't make us the mistakes when he calls people who feel inadequate. That's the point. It's not about your adequacy. It's about you loving God and trusting him and allowing your, his spirit to work through you to make you stronger than you were when you began. God loves you. He includes you in his plans because he knows that when you're part of those big plans by the power of his spirit, that's when you're fully fulfilled. For you know you're part of something big. And you know that you're an instrument of God's will in this world.